Today we are jumping back into a series of messages that we started back in June uh, entitled Best of All, looking at some of the very best things about uh, our Methodist roots and particularly going all the way back to uh, the days of John Wesley himself, the founder of Methodism. We took a little break, uh, hit the pause button last week. Uh, so that we could have a chance to hear from the new member of our team of pastors, Marissa. Um, And Marissa, thank you for sharing last week and helping us get to know you and your call, Um, and also connecting that to an invitation for us all to take our courageous next step in faith and in trust and in our own journey of following Jesus um, so today we're, we're back on the best of all ship again, the Methodist, uh, the Methodist ship. And uh, before I read the passage uh, from the gospel today, I want to say a word about the title for today's message. Uh, some of you may be familiar with the phrase, the world is my parish. And you might automatically connect that to John Wesley, but others may not. And so a little background, um, John Wesley... Uh, for much of his ministry, was not a parish priest. He was not in a local church setting. And in fact, uh, was cast out of a number of churches along the way. And because he started preaching in communities where he was not the parish priest, uh, there were uh, some priests and other leaders of the church, as well as people in the community, who who had great disdain for him and for what he was doing. And so in response to that, Wesley once offered these words, I look upon all the world as my parish. Thus far I mean that in whatever part of it I am, I judge it meet, right, and my bounden duty to declare unto all that are willing to hear the glad tidings of salvation. This is the work which I know God has called me to. His servant I am, and as such, I am employed according to the plain direction of his word, as I have opportunity, doing good unto all. And notice the connection he makes there between a calling to proclaim the glad tidings of salvation wherever he is, while at the same time doing good unto all. Well, I think that is a good way of leading us into our scripture for today, which comes from the fourth chapter of Luke. So I invite you to follow along now as I read that for us. Jesus went to Nazareth where he had been raised. On the Sabbath, he went to the synagogue as he normally did and stood up to read. The synagogue assistant gave him the scroll from the prophet Isaiah. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to liberate the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolled up the scroll gave it back to the synagogue assistant, and sat down. This is the word of God for the people of God, and God's people say, thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Come Holy Spirit, 
and breathe life into the words that I speak, that they might carry a word from you into our hearts and lives this morning. Amen. The stage that is set for this story that we hear in the Gospel of Luke today is this. Jesus has just returned from the wilderness. Perhaps you remember that after being baptized in the Jordan River, after hearing the voice of God pronounce favor on him upon that baptism, Jesus is, senses himself cast out into the wilderness where he will face the temptations of evil. And what we remember from that story is that Jesus, rather than choosing to succumb to those temptations of power or prestige or security for himself, instead remains tethered to God's mission for him in this life. And so he has come out of the wilderness, and the next thing we hear in chapter 4 is that he goes back home to Galilee and ultimately lands back in his hometown of Nazareth, where he has come to preach his first sermon in his home synagogue. That can be a daunting task for anyone to go home and preach their first sermon in their synagogue or church. But Jesus shows up, and when he does, he chooses as his text to read from the prophet Isaiah. Now, many commentators have pointed to this scene in the Gospel of Luke, which also is in other Gospels as well. They point particularly to verses 18 and 19 as an overarching statement of Jesus' purpose. Those verses again say, He has sent me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the prisoners, recovery of sight to the blind, to liberate the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Well, friends, what I want you to hear this morning is, as we think about that verse and that sense of calling on Jesus' life and what it has to say to the rest of us, John Wesley got the memo. John Wesley sensed that his own calling of his life was wrapped up and shaped by Jesus' calling, and especially in the way that Jesus articulated a gospel that both brings good news for people's souls while simultaneously delivering people from human experiences of brokenness and oppression. Another way that Jesus uses to describe this link is when he is asked what is the most important commandment and he immediately ties two together and talks about how loving God and loving neighbor are inseparable. They are intimately intertwined. John Wesley understood this. And so he formed relatively early on his own purpose statement both for himself and what would become a purpose statement for the Methodist movement. And the statement goes like this, to reform the nation, particularly the church, and spread scriptural holiness across the land. You know, this is often quoted with a gap in it. And I'm so glad that we have the whole thing because the one part that you don't always hear is the particularly the church 
part. Uh, and, and, and it's a reminder that the church sometimes has a tendency to talk about how everything out there needs to be reformed without recognizing our own need for being reformed. To reform the nation, particularly the church, and spread scriptural holiness across the land. Now, Wesley talks about this in a variety of ways through, through his sermons and his writings and the way it links together faith and action, and to clarify even more what he means when he talks about the holiness part, listen to these additional quotes from Wesley. There is no holiness but social holiness. Holiness is lived out in a context where we are in community with others. There can be no holiness in isolation. It can only happen within the context of relationships, both with God and with other human beings. And then he also says, Christianity is essentially a social religion. And to turn it into a solitary religion is to destroy it. In other words, there can be no place for just Jesus and me. It is Jesus and we. And we are all a part of that community and we live in community and we learn and we grow and we share and we help in community. That can sometimes be a risky thing. It is not always easy to do life in community. And sometimes it requires things of us that can be uncomfortable or that might force us to give up something that we would prefer to keep for ourselves in order to make sure that we are caring for the well-being of all. In Jesus' own ministry, we see even right there in the fourth chapter of Luke that it doesn't take long before he faces hostility because of this very thing. Oh, sure, his preaching sounded nice in the synagogue, but as soon as the people realized that he actually meant what he was saying and was going to practice it, that he actually was going to care for the people who were considered the outsiders of their day, then suddenly everything changed, and those who had seen themselves as having preferred status or gold card privilege weren't so thrilled about Jesus' ideas and plans. And so it's not long before we hear the story about a crowd that wants to throw him off a cliff, literally. In John Wesley's own life, we see experiences of resistance and hostility as well. There are countless stories of resistance from both within the church of his day and outside the church as well. Numerous accounts where he faces an angry mob that is not pleased with him for sharing good news with all people wherever he goes. And Wesley's determination and perseverance are remarkable aspects of his legacy in this regard. I want to take a couple of minutes today to share one shining example of this perseverance of his. 
And it's a place called The New Room that is located in Bristol, England. Uh, Catherine and I have had a chance to visit Bristol and The New Room on two occasions, most recently just in late May, early June when we were on our Wesley study tour. Um, So listen to this timeline for The New Room. John Wesley, according to the records that we have, first went to Bristol to preach out in an open field, uh, and he was preaching in an open field because he was no longer welcome inside any of the churches nearby in that day. And so he goes out to the open field on April 2nd, 1739. Now, for those of you who are, are good at remembering dates, you may recall that a few weeks ago I shared the story of his heartwarming experience at Aldersgate in the spring of 1738. So this is not quite a year later where he goes and he preaches. And you know that phrase that goes something like, once you've seen something, you can't unsee it? Anybody had an experience like that where once you have seen something, you cannot unsee it? I think that phrase reflects what may have happened to John Wesley when he went to Bristol. Because what he saw were the dire circumstances in which people were living. He saw children who did not have food and did not have shelter and who were not being educated. He saw mine workers who were living in awful conditions and being expected to work in harsh conditions. He saw children being forced into the labor field. And he saw all of this. And his commitment deepened to a both-and understanding of sharing the good news of the gospel. May 9th, 1739, just over a month after that first sermon in Bristol, Wesley, with the help of a couple of religious societies in Bristol who were doing work there as well, secures a piece of property right in the heart of town. He had found the site that would become a home base for ministry to the people of that part of England. Three days later, May 12th, they lay the first stone for the construction of a building there. Just a few weeks later, in late June, construction also begins in Kingswood, just a few miles away, for a site that will become a school that lasts to this very day as a place where boys in England are educated. And by September, and we know this because it is in a journal entry from John's brother Charles, by September, the new room, as John dubbed it, was already up and running in the heart of Bristol. Now count with me, May, June, July, August, September. Five months from his first experience of preaching and seeing what he saw in the town of Bristol and being compelled to invest himself there, he has opened a facility for people to come and hear the good news. Nine years later, 1748, the ministry is busting at the seams and because they had worked to get it up so quickly, It was in need of being rebuilt and also expanded. But from 1748 to today, the new room 
has existed and has, has looked largely like this image that you'll see on the screen here. This is the place where Wesley preached countless sermons, where he watched and mentored other preachers in the Methodist movement, and also where day after day, people from the city of Bristol and surrounding areas could come and receive good news, not just for their souls, but good news for their present day lives and circumstances. Fred Craddock has said that the Gospel of Luke in the fourth chapter where we hear Jesus preach his first sermon is an announcement of who Jesus is. It could be said that the new room is a quintessential statement of who John Wesley was. This was a multi-purpose church facility that was way ahead of its time. The fact that people could come here and not just come for worship, but could receive education, could receive medical care, could receive information about job possibilities, all of the ways in which Wesley was ministering to people in that community was far beyond what would have been normal or typical for the church in that day. And it's important to note that this is not the only place where Wesley's commitment to this both and expression of faith exists. If we widen the lens, we see that his desire to serve finds its roots all the way back in his days in Oxford when he was a student and a young man, when he and Charles and some others formed what we know as the Holy Club and would meet daily to challenge and support each other and spur one another on to good deeds. They would visit prisoners there in Oxford. And there are accounts of them doing things to practice their faith. And then there is the story that John recounts in his journal of one particular meeting that he had with an impoverished woman on the streets of Oxford that changed his heart forever as she approached him in need, John realized that he had just spent the last coins in his pocket on something, as he describes it, frivolous. And he had nothing to give this woman. And he was ashamed and embarrassed. And he vowed from that day forward to never be in that position again, but to always be in a position to help others. After his heartwarming experience at Aldersgate, his focus sharpened on tying these aspects of faith together. And his resolve to do all the good that he could became unwavering. He would raise money for clothes and for mattresses and blankets for prisoners. In his 80s, there are accounts both from his own writing and that of others of him walking the streets of London in the dead of winter day after day for an entire week in order to raise money going door to door to support the poor. He set rigorous boundaries on his own personal spending, deciding early on in his life how much he needed to provide for his own needs so that everything else he could save so that then he could 
give it away to those who needed it. That maxim of his, uh, maxim of his comes from this. Earn all you can, save all you can, give all you can. Just the other day, I was, I was having a, a treat for myself of a Dove chocolate. You know those little dark chocolate promises? Anybody else find themselves easily addicted to those like I do? But they're the little sayings that are on the wrapper when you open them up. And the other day, the saying that I found on my wrapper was, don't talk about it, just be about it. That's a pretty good expression of the life of John Wesley. He didn't just talk about it. He was happy to talk about it. But his talk lined up with his walk. And his witness and his example shaped a movement. He drew others into this same sense of connecting the gospel in their lives through actions that made a difference in the world. And he was quick to talk about just how important it was to place a priority on action as an expression of one's inner faith. In fact, in his sermon entitled On Zeal, where he is talking about both works of personal piety and works of mercy, he has this to say, even reading, hearing, prayer are to be omitted or to be postponed when we are called to relieve the distress of our neighbor. We got to practice it, my friends. And this commitment became a defining characteristic of the Methodist movement from early on. We see it in the ways in which Methodists were central to efforts to reform the prison system of the day and to also reform labor laws. We see it in the emergence of Methodist voices that were a part of the women's rights movement. We see it in the offering of educational assistance and in the offering of medical care from early on as an expression of living out the Methodist faith. And we see it in Methodists being the early voices in the wake of John Wesley's own voice against slavery and moving for the abolition of it. In fact, William Wilberforce himself, who is credited as being central to the abolition efforts in England, was influenced by Wesley. And the Christmas conference that formed the Methodist Church in America in 1784, catch that date now, 1784, one of the founding tenets of that conference was that the Methodist Church in America would work toward the abolition of slavery. That legacy lives on today. Thousands of schools and hospitals and clinics and missions and ministries that have been formed and founded and sustained by the Methodist Church along the way. I love the story that Reverend Adam Hamilton tells. Adam is the senior pastor at Church of the Resurrection in Kansas City. And he talks about being with a friend of his, also a pastor of a large non-denominational church several years ago, where they were just sharing with each other how things were going. And 
his friends started talking about how some really great things were, were beginning to happen in their church and describing how they had always been really good at meeting, reaching seekers and bringing seekers into the church and sharing the good news of the gospel with them, but that just recently some new uh, opportunities had emerged and they were finding the importance of not just coming in, but then going out together into their city and having an impact on their city. And Adam listened to his friend's story, and then when he had come to a stopping point, he paused for a moment, and then he said, welcome to the United Methodist Church. <laughs> Holding those things together, recognizing the connection. You see, and it's always connected. It is not an either or, it is a both and, that we are committed to being invested and involved in those places where there is brokenness and oppression. And the reason we are invested is because we have heard the good news ourselves. And this goes back to what Wesley always recognized as being central to the transformation of society was the transformation of individual lives. Evangelism puts us in touch with the good news that Jesus brings for all. And when our hearts are transformed, then we cannot help but have our lives changed in such a way that our lives bear fruit through the works that we offer, the good works that we do in the world to participate in bringing the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Wesley took Jesus' words, thy will be done, as a call to action. And so as we receive that good news, and allow it to transform our lives and one by one more and more people begin to step into the, the, the following of Jesus and going where Jesus would go. Wesley says we see this happen. The kingdom of God will silently increase and spread from heart to heart, from house to house, from town to town, from one kingdom to another. So what about us, my friends? It is 2022, and if we look around, there are still plenty of places where we see the suffering, where we recognize brokenness, where lives are marginalized and oppressed, where people are living downtrodden, struggling to make it from one day to the next or from one paycheck to the next, what about us? Albert Outler, renowned Wesleyan scholar, says this about the Methodist movement and how it might affect us even today. The world hears the gospel when it sees it, when its witnesses are clearly concerned with human existence and clearly committed to a more fully human future. He has sent me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, 
to liberate the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. If we were to hold up Jesus' purpose statement as the lens through which we view our lives, both individually and collectively, our daily routines and activities, our budgets, both personal and communal as a church, our ministries, what would it tell us? What would it tell others about us? What would we celebrate? And what would we look at and say, you know, that probably needs to change. What would this passage have to offer us as we seek to be a people of the full gospel? The gospel that cares both about salvation of souls and well-being of us all in this life. Just a few years ago, we installed some signage that are at each of the exits to this campus as you go out from this place. You may recognize this sign or have noticed it before. Do all the good you can and you may recognize that quote as one of John Wesley's own quote or the beginning of it anyway. Do all the good you can in all the places you can and all the ways you can, as long as you can, for as ever you can. Do all the good you can. It's a reminder to us that every time we leave this place, we go out into a world that is filled with opportunities for others to see the gospel at work in us, in the things we do, in the choices we make, in the ways we invest ourselves in those who need good news. May the Spirit of the Lord be upon us so that it might be true. Will you pray with me? Holy God, help us. Help us to trust in you and to find our own purpose, first of all, wrapped up in the purpose that we see in the life of your son, Jesus Christ, so that our lives and our, our witness might point to him and to you as the way, the good news, both for this life and the life to come. Amen.